Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you once again, as always, to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of, well, pretty much anything right now, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. It's five Canadian loonies per month. That's it. The price isn't going to go up. It's essentially inflation-proof. We're not going to increase the price. I think it's great. You get to hear us talk about way more engineering failures. A lot of the time, they're not quite long enough to make an episode of Failureology, or we can't find enough information to make a whole episode of Failureology. So, we've released them as Failureology Lite. And for reference, we are not now, nor are we looking to get rich off of our Patreon. We're just looking to cover the costs for our website and our hosting fees for a podcast and maybe if we're lucky buy ourselves a beer for making this show so uh that's kind of what your money's going to if you're if you're supporting our show so if you've been listening for a while or you really really like what we're doing please think about joining our patreon i probably shouldn't tell you this but you could also join for one month listen to all the episodes and cancel your subscription if you want to that would also be i that would be fine Definitely check it out. Uh, if you're unsure about what is on there or if there's any that you think will be interesting, if you go to our website and go to the page called Exclusive Content, there's a list of all of our mini failures there so you can see which ones we've covered so far. This week in engineering news, we're going to talk about Astrolab's Flexible Logistics and Exploration Rover, also known as the Flex Rover, and it's going to be part of future moon missions. The Flex rover will be the largest and most capable rover ever to visit the moon. It's approximately three times the mass of other moon rovers, with a maximum combined rover and cargo mass of more than two tons. It uses a modular system for transporting and deploying payloads, which should allow more flexibility on the missions that it can perform. Right now, for a lot of the rover craft that are sent to Mars or they're sent to the moon, These rovers are very custom-built for that mission or that sensor package. But with the Flex rover, since it's modular, it should allow a lot more flexibility on what can go onto the rover. So this should be much more adaptable for all missions to the moon and then off to Mars. And if you're listening to this thinking, what the heck is a rover? It kind of looks like a dune buggy or a four-wheeler or a quad or some type of four-wheeled device that travels well through sandy-type terrain. Except, of course, the one on the moon is unmanned, so they control it remotely, kind of like a drone, but not the same. I'm I'm mixing a lot of kind ofs and likes into this just to kind of give you a visual image of what a rover is. Uh, but they're pretty cool. They I think they control them from Houston. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not sure where they control them from. Um, this one, the, the Flex rover, it's actually designed so that it can also accommodate two astronauts as well. And it's got kind of some typical rover sensor packages on there. So it's got a robotic arm, so it can do some sampling of of dirt and other things on the moon. It's got a big science mast on it, so it can communicate with the NASA people via you know radio and and other other wavelengths. I mean, what do I know? I went to Houston's NASA facility, and my favorite part was the bicycles. So take that for what you will. If you want to read more about the Flex Rover, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. Not satisfied with buzzing your hair? Don't want to pay the price of an excellent Clips haircut? When you want a mediocre haircut for a mediocre price, 
Mediocre Clips is your out-of-bathroom haircutting destination. Same burnt-out light bulbs as your bathroom, but our stylists have slightly more hair trimming experience than you do. Mediocre Clips. When okay is good enough. Now on to this week's engineering failure, Swiss Air Flight 111, a McDonnell Douglas MD-11 that crashed off the east coast of Canada claiming the lives of all 229 people on board. Swiss Air Flight 111 was a scheduled international passenger flight that operated between JFK, which is in New York, and Cointrin Airport in Geneva, Switzerland. The flight was popular with diplomats and other United Nation members as it was one of the only direct flights between New York City and Geneva where the UN has offices. This crash also happened in 1998. I know nowadays there's lots of direct flights to Europe from North America or vice versa, but in 1998, things were a little bit different. So this flight was was a fairly popular uh, direct flight. Swiss Air Flight 111 crashed eight kilometers or five miles off the coast of Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia, Canada. And unfortunately, when it crashed, it killed all 229 passenger and crew members on board. The Canadian government spent $57 million in search and rescue response, crash recovery, and investigation into the cause of the crash. Swiss Air Flight 111 was operated with a 7-year-old MD-11 aircraft, which is a three-engine modern wide-body airline. And this aircraft, it was derived from the DC-10. We've talked about the MD-11 previously on on Failureology. Um, So this is not the first incident that we've covered that deals with the MD-11. And if you want to go back and listen to that one, it's episode 59, the FedEx Express Flight 80, uh, where we dig into the MD-11. And we go into all the issues with the MD-11. There's a lot of flaws, we'll say, with that plane. And it's nowadays, the few that are left are pretty much all in cargo. We also talked about the DC-10 a lot in episode 42, which was uh, United Flight 232, and that's the one where the third rear engine at the tail of the plane just completely catastrophically exploded and cut some control wires that were supposed to be redundant but were not. That was really interesting if you want to go back and take a listen to that. Episode 42 and episode 59 are the two you want to check out for the DC-10 and the MD-11. Swiss Air Flight 111 was configured with 241 passenger seats with the first class and business class seats having in-seat in-flight entertainment systems. So these entertainment systems were the first of its kind equipped on the airplane. So these are the the entertainment systems that we basically take for granted now. They're the ones that are in the in the headrest in the seat ahead of you, or if you have a bulkhead in front of you, they usually come out of your out of your seat uh, or out, out of your armrest on the side. So the Synflight Entertainment System it allowed for browsing the World Wide Web, which be cool. I think back in 1998, I think I still had dial-up internet in 1998. So the fact that you could surf the World Wide Web from 35,000 feet over the Atlantic. That was a pretty big thing. You could do the standard stuff. You could play games, solitaire. You could play some, you'd do some crossword puzzles, the usual things you can do on the in-flight entertainment systems, watch movies. Either way, 1998, this was a pretty revolutionary thing. I mean, 1998, everyone had CRT monitors. Flat screen TVs just meant the screen was flat, but it still had the bulk in the back part for the CRT stuff. So in-flight entertainment systems were a big thing. It's kind of crazy to think about that over 25 years, we went from in-seat entertainment being the newest, hottest thing to now we rarely use it and we all use our portable devices, our phones, tablets, uh, computers. 
to do the same things that we used to do with this in seat. I, I, it's rare that I've been on, I mean, I, I don't fly a ton, but I do fly quite a bit and I can actually remember the last time I was on a plane where in-flight entertainment was the only option. It's been a while. And that was only 25 years ago. So we've come a long way. Yeah. Before in-flight entertainment, the big thing was having a phone in the back of the seat um, that I think was like $5 a minute um, to make a phone call from. That was kind of the big thing that was on airplanes. And then in-flight entertainment systems were kind of the next step. Because the systems were small enough to fit in the aircraft or some aircraft, I think just like the old buses had TVs that would come down from the roof. It's been a really long time. I mean, this is 25, 30 years ago. I don't remember it that well, just because again, like Nicole said, all of the flights that we take now, they seem to have in-flight entertainment systems in them. And it's just a standard feature now. Captain of Swiss Air Flight 111 was 50-year-old Urs Zimmerman, a former Swiss Air Force fighter pilot with over 10,000 hours total flying time. 900 hours of which were on the MD-11. The first officer was also a former Swiss Air Force pilot with 4,800 hours of total flying time, 230 hours of that were on the MD-11. Approximately 53 minutes after departing New York JFK Airport while flying at flight level 330 or 33,000 feet, the flight crew smelled an abnormal odor in the cockpit. A small amount of smoke became visible in the cockpit, then it is likely that the smoke stopped entering the cockpit for an undetermined length of time. So the flight crew assessed that there was an anomaly associated with the air conditioning system, which I think is a fairly reasonable assumption to make. Obviously, since the, the aircraft broke into many pieces when it impacted the water and nobody survived this, all of this is kind of pieced together by the crash investigators. And we'll get to kind of how the investigation worked in a little bit, but I think right now, um, and reading through the crash investigation report, this is a pretty reasonable, you know, kind of course of action and diagnosis by the flight crew. After conversing with air traffic control, the flight decided to divert to Halifax International Airport in Nova Scotia, Canada. And while they were preparing to divert, the flight crew was unaware that the fire was spreading above the ceiling area in front of the aircraft. There was no fire detection suppression system that was installed on the aircraft in this location that could have alerted the flight crew to the presence of fire. As a person that's done a bunch of flying, trying to deal with a fire event in flight is probably one of the trickiest incidents to deal with, especially one where you don't know the origin of the fire. Engine fires are fairly standard, straightforward to deal with, but a fire in, in the wiring or somewhere in the cabin that you don't know the source of is incredibly difficult to first of all find where it is and then second of all like diagnose in accordance with the swiss air checklist for smoke of unknown origin the crew shut off power to the cabin which also turned off the re recirculating fans in the cabin ceiling this allowed the fire to spread to the cockpit eventually shutting off power to the aircraft's autopilot which is not a great situation so this flight occurred in darkness so they, they kind of departed um jfk airport i believe at around 9 p.m 9 30 p.m the night of the incident and then when the autopilot when all the power goes off to the autopilot system uh the crew has to revert to manual flying the aircraft which when you're dealing with a situation like this is not ideal the workload's always the workload is already really high dealing with an in-flight emergency and then when you also have to manually fly the aircraft, it just compounds a problem. It just adds to the level of stress and things that this crew is dealing with. 13 minutes after the abnormal odor was first detected, the aircraft's flight data recorder began to record a rapid succession of aircraft systems-related failure, likely as a result of the fire that's spreading throughout this aircraft. 
The flight crew declared an emergency and indicated a need to land immediately. One minute later, radio communication and secondary radar contact with the aircraft was lost. Approximately 5 minutes and 30 seconds later, at 2231 Atlantic Daylight Saving Time, the aircraft impacted the ocean 5 miles or 8 kilometers from Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia. The impact forces were estimated to be 350 Gs, which caused the aircraft to disintegrate instantly. So we're not going to dive too much into the recovery effort. If you want to read more about that, please do. But once they realized that there were likely no survivors, the government of Canada stepped in and tried to find the plane so that they could piece together what happened. And over a course of several days, they were able to eventually find some of the key pieces, a lot of that by submarine from what I've read, the the plane landed on the ocean floor about 50 meters below the surface. So approximately 98% of the aircraft by weight was recovered from the ocean through a combination of dredging, heavy lift operations, remote operated vehicles, naval and coast guard divers. The wreckage was brought ashore, washed, weighed and cataloged with items showing heat damage, burns and unusual marks stored in the hangar of the CFB Shearwater. The front 33 feet or 10 meters of the aircraft from the front of the cockpit to near the front of the first class passenger cabin was reconstructed from the pieces that they brought up. So I just want to say when I first read about this incident, probably 20 years ago, I was really impressed at the ability that the Transportation Safety Board here in Canada had to reconstruct really the critical pieces in this incident, the first kind of 33 feet or 10 meters of the aircraft. Since the fire started in the... um, kind of in the the ceiling um, above the cockpit, kind of the first class area. This was a really crucial piece for them to reconstruct. And having this aircraft impact the ocean at 350 Gs, there aren't a lot of pieces that are left. And the aircraft is fragmented into, I I mean, essentially millions of of incredibly tiny pieces. Um, And they were able to figure out where a lot of these pieces went, rebuild the the front 10 meters of this aircraft with all the wiring that was in there, any damage that had occurred. So this was a really critical step in figuring out what went wrong with Swiss Air Flight 111. So McDonnell Douglas was involved in this Boeing and McDonnell Douglas since Boeing purchased McDonnell Douglas. Um, So they're responsible for sending their crash investigators. Pratt and Whitney was involved in this as well since it was their engine systems that were there. But the jurisdiction, since this happened in Canadian airspace, the jurisdiction for crash investigation goes to Transportation Safety Board of Canada. There are other representatives from, yeah, like Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. Um, the Swiss, Swiss Transportation Safety Board is involved as well, the Swiss Air representatives. But the Transportation Safety Board is the one that was responsible for determining what happened with this aircraft. The, the procedure, the ICAO, basically the ICAO procedure is that wherever the aircraft crashes, that's who's supposed to be responsible for the investigation. They will ask sometimes for other countries to step in that just have more expertise in that area or just in crash investigation in general. The Transportation Safety Board determined that the fire most likely started from an electrical arcing event that occurred above the ceiling on the right side of the cockpit near the cockpit's rear wall. The arcing event ignited the flammable cover material on nearby metallized polyethylene terephthalate covering on the thermal acoustic insulation blankets. As the fire spread across the surface of the insulation blankets, other flammable materials became involved, including silicone elastomeric end caps, hook and loop fasteners, foams, adhesives, thermal acoustic insulation splicing tapes, and metallized polyvinyl fluoride 
insulation blanket cover material. So there's a number of flammable things, and as soon as one of them caught fire, it caught all the other ones around it on fire as well. And because there were so many flammable items in the ceiling, the fire progression was rapid and involved a number of these materials together sustained and propagated the fire. And also because it was above the ceiling, it went undetected by the crew. So reconstruction of the wreckage indicated that a segment of arced electrical cable associated with the in-flight entertainment network had been located in the area where the fire most likely originated. Again, since nobody survived this incident, nobody could be interviewed for this. So this is what the TSB, the Transportation Safety Board, has pieced together based off the fragments of wires that they've recovered, the fragments of the cockpit that they've recovered. They've looked at burn patterns and arcing. And just in the same way that an arson investigator would do this for a fire, the TSB also did this for this aircraft and figured out that the likely origin of the fire was kind of where this in-flight entertainment network bundle um, had been located. So as a result of this, 70 airworthiness directives were published by the FAA regarding one-time inspections of wires and electrical components in the front ceiling area of the aircraft. So whenever an incident occurs, especially one with such a large loss of life, there are bulletins that are issued for operators of the aircraft to inspect areas where, you know, the Transportation Safety Board or the NTSB in the state thinks that that incident may have occurred. So if this happened in one airplane, there's a possibility that it can happen in multiple other airplanes. So the best thing to do is to inspect those airplanes and make sure that there aren't those issues in in airplanes that are currently on the ground. So just to go back to the MD-11 issues we talked about earlier with FedEx Flight 80, while we did touch on Swiss Air Flight 111 in that discussion, the flammable materials and the potential for arcing wasn't even really the main issues with the MD-11. Of course, it caused this crash, and that is unfortunate and catastrophic and shouldn't have happened, but there were also a lot of other issues with the MD-11, specifically with how the planes were controlled as they were landing. And I think at takeoff as well, that that caused a number of crashes, very, very, again, catastrophic crashes on the runway for the most part. During the lead arcing event, the associated circuit breakers did not trip. So the board, the Transportation Safety Board, concluded that although the type of circuit breakers used in the aircraft were fairly common in aircraft for in-flight entertainment systems, the circuit breakers were not capable of protecting against all types of wire arcing events. So the board did recommend that certification test regimes be mandated to evaluate aircraft electrical wire failure characteristics under realistic operating conditions and against specified performance criteria with the goal of mitigating against the risk of igniting nearby flammable material. So the circuit breakers, we have circuit breakers on aircraft, they're very similar to the circuit breakers that are in your house. So when the circuit breakers detect a spike of electricity or some arcing, um, instead of having basically the wiring catch on fire like it did in this case, the breaker should pop and then the circuit is de-energized. So there shouldn't be a, a fire event that occurs. Unfortunately, in this case, that was not the case. The circuit breakers didn't pop, so this fire was allowed to continue burning, and the arcing continued to happen. The Transportation Safety Board analyzed airflow patterns and fire propagation in the aircraft to assess what cues may have been available to the pilots during the early stages of the fire. It was determined that the small amount of odor and smoke first noticed by the pilots originated from a small creeping fire that started rearwards from the area of initial ignition and toward the area above the forward passenger cabin ceiling, which is first class. 
As the fire started, it is likely that the associated smoke temporarily stopped migrating forward into the cockpit. And as the aircraft wasn't required to be equipped with built-in fire detection in this hidden area in the ceiling space where the fire was located, the pilots were not aware that the fire was there at all, which is really unfortunate and concerning. The board concluded that the actions by the flight crew in preparing the aircraft for landing, including their decision to have the passenger cabin readied for landing and to dump fuel, were consistent with them being unaware that an onboard fire was underway. The board issued several recommendations to mitigate against potential fires in hidden areas of aircraft, including a recommendation that appropriate regulatory authorities, together with the aviation community, review the method for establishing designated fire zones within the pressurized portion of the aircraft. The intent was to do this with a view to provide improved smoke and fire detection and suppression capability. So there should be more sensors or devices to detect that the fire's there, and then also the capability to stop the fire from spreading, and ideally put it out. By the time the crew was aware of the fire, it had developed to a condition where it's unlikely that had they had firefighting equipment and methods, they would likely would not have been effective. It was too late at that point. And the board concluded that industry-wide changes were necessary to provide aircraft crews with effective means to detect and suppress fires in these hidden areas in these ceiling spaces, including the provision for ready access to those areas with an access panel or some type of opening so that they could check. You know, you, you well, nowadays it's a little bit different, but it, if you think of the, the ceiling as one solid piece that gets installed as the as the plane is constructed, if I can't open that to see what's inside, then I can't detect the fire and I have no way of putting it out until it starts spreading through that big single piece of ceiling. So putting in access doors or other openings that allowed them to fight the fire was also a really important part of that exercise. Yeah. So just like your car, um, airplanes obviously have a lot of electrical systems and they have a whole bunch of wire bundles that run through the floorboards or underneath the floor through the sides of the aircraft, through the ceiling. So if any of these start on fire, it's often very difficult to get a fire extinguisher into those areas without having access panels or without having the ability to open up some of those areas. So now a lot of aircraft will carry fire axes or have some way for the flight crew to access the area where the fire is occurring. So that way they can get firefighting equipment, whether it's fire extinguishers or other blankets in there just to mitigate the spread of the fire. During the fire, silicone elastomeric end caps installed on air conditioning ducts melted, which resulted in the addition of a continuous supply of conditioned air that contributed to the propagation and intensity of the fire. As we know, there's a couple components that are necessary for a fire to burn. One of those components is a supply of oxygen. The air conditioning system here with the end caps melting basically just fed oxygen into this fire continuously, which helped this fire spread, helped this fire grow. The cap assemblies that was used on the stainless steel oxygen line above the cockpit ceiling was susceptible to leaking or fracturing when exposed to the temperatures that were likely experienced during the last few minutes of the flight. So the transportation board recommended that as a prerequisite to certification, all aircraft systems in the pressurized portion of an aircraft, including their subsystems, components, and connections, be evaluated to ensure that those systems whose failure could exacerbate a fire in progress are designed to mitigate the risk of fire-induced failures. This seems like a really smart thing to me to have if some of your systems may be subjected to, you know, fire or intense heat. It's really important to make sure that they can withstand those temperatures and that they'll perform in the way that 
they're intended to perform. For at least some portion of the last minutes of the flight, primary flight displays in the cockpit ceased operating, likely as a result of the fire burning through the wire bundles that supported those systems. A lack of outside visual references forced the pilots to rely on the standby instruments that are in the cockpit. So remember, this is occurring at night, so it's dark out, it's over the ocean, so there's no visual reference to the ground, they can't see you know, really any cities, so they're relying on outside visual references that aren't present, um, so they need to rely on their standby instruments. So in this deteriorating cockpit environment, the positioning and small size of the standby instruments would have made it difficult for the pilots to transition to their use and to continue to maintain the proper spatial orientation of the aircraft. The Transportation Safety Board called upon Transport Canada to work with the Federal Aviation Administration as well as the Joint Aviation Authorities in Europe to address identified safety concerns, including the lack of a power supply for the standby instruments that is independent of the aircraft electrical systems. The board believes that the standby instruments should be in a standard grouping layout similar to the primary flight instruments, and they should be positioned in the normal line of vision of the flight crew. The board also believes that with current technology, providing independent standby instrumentation for secondary navigation and communication is feasible. So I agree with all these board recommendations. Having standby instruments, even though you don't ever intend to use them when you need to use them, it really helps if they're consistent across all aircraft platforms. If they're in generally the same spot, it makes it a little bit easier to work with. The board also pointed out some issues with the map lighting and the interior cockpit lighting. Um, wanting that to be independent as well so it would provide enough illumination to the flight instruments especially the secondary flight instruments all of these things i believe have been incorporated into more modern aircraft design at the time obviously this was something that hadn't been addressed in in the md-11 or the dc-10 series aircraft in modern aircraft this has been addressed during the course of this investigation some additional risks that have the potential to to reduce safety were identified and although these factors could not be shown to have played a direct role in this crash, the associated deficiencies could potentially lead to other accidents if they're not corrected. And I think that's really good that they looked at, okay, these are all the things that went wrong here, but these are all the other things that could go wrong and we should correct those as well. And of those areas of concern, there were uh, checklists that didn't adequately deal with smoke conditions aircraft designs that don't facilitate the quick depowering of electrical systems. The map light design and installation of the plane was an issue. There was a lack of clarity in the guidance material and regulations regarding wire separation in confined areas. And there was an inadequacy of supplemental type certificate standards to ensure that add-on equipment is compatible with the aircraft's type certificate. In addition to these areas of concern, the board also had 14 safety recommendations that it issued during the course of the investigation. Nine of these recommendations are presented in the final report. Um, the final report will be available on failureology.ca at the end of this episode show notes. Two of the recommendations deal with testing and flammability standards of in-service thermal acoustic insulation materials. One of the recommendations deals with the application of existing standards for the certification of other materials. Two recommendations that focus on aircraft electrical systems, including additional measures for certifying supplementary add-on systems and industry standards for circuit breaker resetting. Four recommendations that propose improvements to the capture and storage of flight data as it relates to cockpit voice recorders, flight data recorders, and cockpit imaging recording systems. Just as a note, um, I believe that 
the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, um, they used a, a magnetic tape. Um, and it would overwrite, it, it only had half an hour of tape time, so it would just overwrite the last half hour um, of tape material that was on there. So a lot of information can be lost, especially in the diagnosis of system problems with the reduced recording life of the tape. Now the, the recording capability is much longer, but back then, again, 1998, there just wasn't that technology to record a lot of data on tape systems. As a result of the Transportation Safety Board's findings and recommendations during the course of the Swiss Air Flight 111 investigation, a lot of safety action has been taken by various regulatory authorities, airlines, and manufacturers to address the recommendations, advisories, and observations made by the board. Such actions taken has significantly improved aviation safety worldwide, which is a great thing, especially since we're flying on way more planes than we were in 1998. Some of the significant actions that were taken to date include the thermal acoustic insulation blankets that were flammable have been removed from aircraft. New flammability testing criteria has been developed, which is which is fantastic and something that we do in building construction as well. There are what we call flame and smoke spread ratings, which are how fast the flame and smoke will spread from a certain device if it does catch fire. And depending on where the material is installed, it has to meet certain requirements or certain flame and smoke spread levels to be allowed to be installed in that area. Flight crew reading lights have been redesigned. Additional guidance material for dealing with smoke situations has been given to flight crews. Aircraft checklists have been modified. Numerous inspections have been completed on wiring and components to look for and eliminate potential ignition sources. The in-flight entertainment system was removed voluntarily from Swiss Air aircraft and the design was decertified and new FAA policies are in place for the certification of in-flight entertainment systems, which looking back at this seems, those all seem like pretty standard things that they should have done. But what we've been learning throughout the course of this show is that a lot of times we don't necessarily think about all of the terrible things that can go wrong. And it isn't until something like this happens that we think, oh, maybe we should change how we're doing things to prevent this from happening again. I think we just, as a society, we need to be a little more proactive and a little less reactive. Yeah. And it's it's really unfortunate, like Nicole mentioned, that a lot of these incidents that wind up in redesign happen as a result of people losing their lives. Yeah. And fortunately, 229 people perished in this incident that led to a lot of redesign for redesign and recertification for in-flight entertainment systems, uh, various regulators looking at flammable materials and where they should be, fire access points. So all of these things happen as a result of 229 people losing their lives. I like to think that hundreds or thousands of people are still alive today as a result of these changes that were made. So there you have it, an in-flight electrical fire that resulted in the crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 with the loss of 229 lives. Better flammability testing criteria, in-flight fire detection, flight crew reading lights, and checklist redesign could have prevented a tragedy that took 229 lives. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. 
You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right on our Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. And thanks again to everyone listening. Tune into the next episode where we'll dive into highway design and how it impacts the world around us. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>